0: So uh, I'm just afraid that this will be a misunderstanding in the sense that, you know, when I was invited here, I thought that I can afford, that I can step out of this role which is often attributed to me and that I'm really starting to hate this, you know, oh, he will tell some dirty jokes, clown, and so on, no? (laughs) And I prepared a rather more purely philosophical So, I hope you will not be, my God, disappointed. I mean, it's really about philosophy. It's still elementary, but I try to arrive at the notion of Todestrip, death drive, through a a detailed analysis of what Lacan, Jacques Lacan, meant by his famous ethical. Motto, which he defines as the motto of ethics of psychoanalysis, which is "ne pas céder sur son désir." Do not compromise your desire. Do not, do not give way with regard to your <coughs> desire. And I want to arrive finally at uh, at what trip is about. Because for me, what Freud called the strip, it's kind of a, not in itself, an ethical agency, but a kind of a, to put it in naïve terms, a priori transcendental ground for all possible ethics and so on. So, again, you got my warning. It's philosophy. First, I will quote this famous passage from Jacques Lacan's. It's translated into German also, of course, Ethik der Psychoanalyse. Quote, It is because we know better than those who went before, how to recognize the nature of desire, which is at the heart of our experience, that a reconsideration of ethics is possible, that a form of ethical judgment is possible, of a kind that gives this question the force of a last judgment. Have you acted in conformity with the desire that is in you? End of quote. This is Lacan's maxim of the ethics of psychoanalysis. Another quote, the only thing of which one can be guilty is of having given ground relative to one's desire, end of quote. This maxim, simple and clear as it appears, becomes elusive the moment one tries to specify its meaning. How does it stand with regard to the panoply of today's ethical options? it seems to fit three of its main versions. Liberal tolerant hedonism, immoral ethics, and what I ironically call Western Buddhism. Uh, You know, you can understand, again, be faithful to your desire as this general vague ethics which we have today. The kind of uh, Dalai Lama meets Hollywood ethics, you know. This attitude of... We really live in strange times where we are no longer interpolated, addressed by ideology with a command, sacrifice your life, be, uh, uh, be a good, whatever, democrat, communist, uh, uh, but a kind of vague hedonist injunction. Be truly yourself, realize yourself, make something out of your life, And uh, I think that uh, I'm so sad I don't have more time to go into this. I think that this vaguely hedonist injunction, which incidentally is also the reason why I think uh, somebody like Dalai Lama is so popular, you should read his books, at least the first page, where I stopped. He always makes this weird statement, which is, I quote you one version, the purpose of life is to be happy. My God, my reaction is, hasn't this guy heard of Freud and so on? Uh, li- like, this is why people like Richard Gere like Dalai Lama, no? Because the, 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 the message is do a little bit of Buddhist training and so on and you will have even more pleasurable uh, and so on and so on. So uh, 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 my thesis is that this vaguely hedonist, pseudo-orientalist, whatever ethics, is effectively the predominant form of ideology today and even it's something which emerged out of our embracing of 68 68 by 68 I mean the student movement and so on I think that this was the greatest success of ruling ideology how all the motives of 68 which was nonetheless it's totally forgotten today almost the radical questioning of capitalist society it was reappropriated at some kind of uh, liberating our desire anti-bureaucratic creativity and so on and as you probably know best than me, uh, uh, better than me. Uh, All this was uh, uh, then perfectly incorporated by this new, however we call it, postmodern capitalism, which pretends to be, you know, no longer hierarchical, bureaucratic, but creative, interactive, autopoetic, and so on, whatever. Uh, I think that one way to see where we are today, how ideology, ideology functions, this ideology of happiness, and it's a deep indication of where we are, that in the last years in the United States, do you know this, that happiness studies are established as a uh, academic category. We have happiness studies functioning, how people make happy and so on. In other words, it is legitimate to <coughs> make happiness the goal of your life. Of course, the result is then, we know which one, that 80% of academics are taking Prozac in the United States, you have more anxiety than ever, and so on and so on. But uh, what I want to say is that another indication, maybe the best one of this shift would be, I always like this superficial phenomena which serves as indicators, how publicity functions today. I noticed... How, okay, we have two traditional modes of publicity, but today we are approaching a third mode of publicity. The basic form of publicity is, and these three forms, interestingly enough, fit the Lacanian triad of real, symbolic, imaginary, where the publicity refers to your, to the re- so called, even if imagined, but nonetheless, real qualities of the object. Let's say you want to have a Land Rover. A car. This traditional reclamant publicity would emphasize, you know, it doesn't take much, uh, it doesn't uh, consume too much, uh, too much, uh, too much fuel, it can go the steep mountain, whatever the real qualities are. Then we have the symbolic publicity which focuses on this, keeping up with the Jonas' competitive factor, like how you will appear, basically. If you have this car, it, you will thereby signal your social status and so on, this aspect. But then today, I think that there is a third mode of publicity which relates not to neither to real qualities of the object nor to the social status it guarantees to you, like if you have this car, you will signal your superiority, whatever, but to your experience, how, in what way, this object will make your life meaningful, and so on, and so on. For example, uh, the second type of publicity for Land Rover would have been, have this current, you will appear macho, you will appear superior, but the third post-modern, post-68, form of publicity would have been like, do you feel oppressed in your daily life? Have this car and you will feel your life energy, your life will be meaningful. As if, the point is the experience rendered by this product. And I think, here I'm a little bit more pessimist than usual, I think that the same goes even for many progressive causes, so-called, which are typical today. For example, uh, and uh, now I will say something very brutal. Uh, we, why do some of us like to buy organic food? I claim you don't really believe. Don't tell me that you really believe that those half-rotten apples who cost more than the genetically manipulated are really more healthy. I also don't think that you signal some great social status with this. It's simply, I think it's just this... Pathetic, sentimental identification. There are problems today in the world, and by buying organic food, you know, I participate, I render my life meaningful. It's not just the stupid uh, it's, uh, the I do something, I care for uh, t- nature, and so on, and so on. It's And this type of manipulation is at its worst. I really hate them. With uh, You have them, unfortunately, here already. I saw Starbucks coffee. Their entire publicity of going, you know, like, buy this coffee and you're helping some stupid Guatemala family, or you know, like, <laughs> we buy coffee from poor Guatemalans, so... Or they have now, even in the United States, they sell water, which they call it ethos, ethos, like ethics. And they claim that drink this water and five 5% of the price you pay goes to some special foundation which brings waters to those in desert areas. So like you know, you not only consume an object uh, and so on. The problem of course is that they earn even more because the water costs two dollars and a half. So they charge it fifty uh, fifty fifty cents more and they give five cents and so on. But my point is you see the logic of how consumation is no longer just it's also a social, ethical experience and so on and so on, which is why I think charity plays a crucial role today in making something good, us feel good and so on. In what sense? Let's imagine a simple experiment uh, along the lines of a film that I think should be rediscovered as one of the great Hollywood leftist films. Maybe some of you know it. John Carpenter. Yes, the one who did uh, Halloween, it's strangely... He did a very weird film, I think in the early 90s, called They Live... It's a mo- modest science fiction film about an unemployed worker in Los Angeles who enters an abandoned church looking where to spend the night. He's also homeless and finds a box with strange sunglasses. And he puts the sunglasses on, walks along the street, and notices something strange. These are literally ideology critique sunglasses. If you put these sunglasses on, you can see like the real message. Like, he looks Across the street, there is a big publicity board. Uh, visit, visit Hawaii. Have the holiday of your life. Enjoy. He puts the glasses on and he says, "Be stupid. Enjoy. Don't think. Just and so on. Whatever." So, uh, uh, what? That, that's the question I'm asking you. If we were, when you see on TV. Or in the newspapers, you know, these disgustingly manipulative ads, usually disfigured child from Africa, and then they tell you, like, give the price of two, three cappuccinos uh, 10 euros per month, and you will save a black kid's child life or whatever. All nice, but what would we have seen if we were to put on this kind of glasses? I claim two messages. The first one is... uh, do you have anxiety about that you live a lead a relatively good life and people are starving? Fine, we are offering you an easy way out. No, <laughs> give ten euros a month and you can stop worrying. You no, know? we are the the other thing is a deeply conservative, I claim, uh, a motive of depoliticization, in the sense of uh, in what sense? Uh, like you know. The old left liked the rhetoric of emergency state in the sense of we live here in our isolated ivory tower, but are we aware that people are starving out there? But today Bill Gates talks like that. Bill Gates almost in all his interviews sends something like, let's, and that's the message, let's forget about this old stupid dogmatic struggles, left, right, ideology, capitalism, people are starving in africa let's all come together business private government and let's do something and so on and that's the message i think do it that is to say don't think do it it's just precisely the message under this in the terms of this false emergency state of like like pushing us towards activity instead of analyzing critically the situation, which is why I think that today we should be precisely shamelessly against doing, in the sense that I'm almost tempted to say that one should turn around today the Marxist thesis 11, you know, philosophers have only interpreted the world, we have also to change it that maybe we tried only to change the world too much, it's time to interpret it again, like to understand where we stand and so on. We need, we should be absolutely (coughs) shameless here. So, back to my main point, I didn't lose my thread. So, uh, uh, we have first liberal tolerant hedonism, all these ethics of self-realization and so on. We have a more Nietzschean immoral ethics and we have what I called Western Buddhism. What did Lacan want to say with his Maxime? Let's go through these versions. The first thing to state categorically is that Lacanian ethics is not an ethics of hedonism. Whatever do not compromise your desire means, it does not mean the unrestrained rule of what Freud called lust principle, the functioning of the psychic apparatus that aims at achieving pleasure. For Lacan, hedonism is in fact the very model of postponing desire on behalf of realistic compromises. In order to attain the greatest amount of pleasure, I have to calculate, economize, I have to sacrifice short term pleasures for the more intense long term ones. There is no break between lust principle and its counterpart, realitätsprincipe. Realitätsprincipe, which compels us to take into account the limitations of reality, which obstruct our direct access to pleasures is an inherent prolongation of loose principle. And again, as already said, even so called Western Buddhism is not immune to this trap. Uh, But uh, for Lacan, ethical ethics, uh, sorry, uh, uh, desire is an ethical category. It functions, it's not desire, does not mean follow your natural, spontaneous inclinations and so on. It functions like the Kantian ethical duty, like a foreign traumatic intruder, which from the outside disturbs the subject's homeostatic uh, balance. It is, for Lacan, it's desire itself, which is the Desil's principles. Desire means, like, You follow it even if it brings pain. Uh, So hedonism is to be rejected. That's not what Lacan means. Is then Lacanian ethics a version of the heroic immoral ethics, which enjoins us to remain faithful to oneself, to persist on our chosen path beyond good and evil? Think about Don Giovanni in the last act of Mozart's opera, where the... Stone Guest confronts Don Giovanni with a choice. He is near death, but if he repents for his sins, he can still be redeemed. If, however, he does not renounce his sinful life, he will burn in hell forever. Don Giovanni heroically refuses to repent, although he is well aware that he has nothing to gain except eternal suffering for his persistence. Why does he do it? Obviously not for any profit or promise of pleasure to come. The only explanation is his utmost fidelity to the dissolute life he has chosen. This is a clear case of immoral ethics. Don Giovanni's life was undoubtedly immoral. However, as his fidelity to himself demonstrates, he was immoral not for pleasure or profit, but out of principle, acting the way he did as part of a fundamental existential choice. Or, To take a feminine example from opera, Georges Bizet's Carmen. Carmen is, of course, immoral, ruining men's lives, destroying families, and so on. But nonetheless, truly ethical, faithful to her chosen path to the end, even if this means certain death. Nietzsche, a great admirer of Carmen, was the philosopher of (coughs) immoral ethics. And we should always remember that the title of Nietzsche's masterpiece is Genealogy their morale, not their ethic. The two are not the same. Morality is concerned with the symmetry of my relations to other humans. Its zero level rule is do not do to me what you do, what do not want me to do to you. Incidentally, a good rule to follow for a, for a masochist, no, where it gets a little bit complicated. <laughs> ethics, on the contrary, deals with my consistency with myself, my fidelity to my own desire. Who formulated this immoral ethics in a perfect way? None other than our, our beloved comrade Stalin. Namely, on the back of the 1939 edition of Lenin's materialism and Empirio criticism, A copy of this book was found in Stalin's uh, bedroom after his death. It was published a couple of years ago, this note. in uh, It's a pretty terrifying note in some some Russian journal. Stalin made the following note in red pencil. I quote, First, weakness. Second, idleness. Three, stupidity. These are the only things that can be called vices. Everything else in the absence of the aforementioned, is undoubtedly virtue. NB, note, if a man is, first, strong, spiritually, point two, active, three, clever, or capable, then he is good, regardless of any other vices. That's, I think, immoral ethics at its purest. This is a concise as ever formulation of immoral ethics. In contrast to it, A weakling who obeys moral rules and worries about his guilt stands for unethical morality, the target, of course, of Nietzsche's critique of resentment. There is, however, a limit to Stalinism, not that it is too immoral, but that it is secretly all too moral, still relying on what Lacan calls a figure of the big other. That is to say, in what is probably The most intelligent legitimization of the Stalinist terror, Maurice Maurice merleau pontys Humanism and Terror, from 1946, Stalinist terror is justified as a kind of divete, wager on the future, almost in the mode of the theology of Blaise Pascal, who enjoins us to make a bet on God. If the final result of today's horror will be bright communist future, then this outcome will retroactively redeem the terrible things a revolutionary has to do today. Um, Along similar lines, even some Stalinists themselves, when, in half-private usually, were forced to admit that many of the victims of the Stalinist purges were innocent, and were accused and killed because the party needed their blood to fortify its unity, they Imagine a future moment of final victory at which all the necessary victims will be given their due and their innocence and their highest sacrifice for the cause will be recognized. This is what Lacan in his seminar on ethics of psychoanalysis refers to as the perspective of the last judgment, a perspective even more clearly discernible in one of the key terms of the Stalinist discourse, that of objective guilt or objective meaning of your acts. While you can be an honest individual with most sincere intentions, you are nonetheless objectively guilty if your acts serve reactionary forces. And it is, of course, the Communist Party which has the direct access to what your acts acts objectively mean. This is the secret theological dimension of Stalinism, not this uh, teleology, there will be bright communist future, but this perspective of the last judgment, this idea that there is a historical subject, Communist Party, which already today knows what the true meaning of your act is, which is, as it were, the direct instrument of of historical necessity which can, as it were, act from the perspective of, act already today from the perspective of last uh, judgment. And incidentally, I am tempted to defend Hegel here. I think the time maybe has come, I cannot develop it today, of course, to claim that Hegel was a greater materialist than Marx, in what sense? Uh, People usually claim that Hegel's history of philosophy is a kind of a totalitarian one, you know, everything is justified on behalf of the progress of reason and so on. But what Hegel prohibits, it's precisely this position. The position of someone who, while acting in history, already controls the meaning of his, her, their act. For Hegel, an agent like the Stalinist Communist Party, which can say, what we are doing is only a realization of a higher historical necessity, we are instrument of history, and so on. That's prohibited, because for Hegel, every act retroactively produces its meaning, is, is, uh, done, it's, it's done through failure, and so on, and so on. So again, I think that whatever Hegel is guilty of, he's not guilty of this. Uh, but back to Lacan... Uh, This is why Lacan's motto, il n'y a pas de grand autre, there is no big other, the big other doesn't exist, brings us to the very core of the ethical problematic. What Lacan excludes is precisely this perspective of the last judgment, the idea that somewhere, even if it will be as a truly virtual point of reference, even if we concede that we cannot ever occupy this place, that there must be a standard which allows us to take measure of our acts and produce their true meaning, their true ethical status. Even Jacques Derrida's notion of deconstruction as justice, I think, relies on a utopian hope which sustains the specter of infinite justice, forever postponed but nonetheless kept as the ultimate horizon of our activity you know this idea that even if it's de facto inaccessible we must act as if there is a final point where retroactively there will be an objective judgment on the status of our acts. The harshness of the Lacanian ethics is that it demands us to relinquish this reference and it's further thesis is that not only does this abdication not deliver us to an ethical insecurity or relativism, but that renouncing the guarantee of some big other is the very condition of a truly autonomous ethics. Recall that the dream about Irma's injection, which Freud used as the exemplary case to illustrate his procedure of analyzing dreams, is a dream about responsibility, Freud's own responsibility for the failure of his treatment of Irma. This fact alone indicates that responsibility is a crucial Freudian notion. But how are we to conceive it? How are we to avoid the common misperception that the basic ethical message of psychoanalysis is precisely the one of relieving me of my responsibility, of putting the blame on the other? You know, as they usually put it, uh, You feel guilty for your unconscious fantasies, and then as if the psychoanalyst is telling you, no, it's not you, it's your unconscious, the the others' discourse, don't feel guilty, you are not responsible for it. Mm. Lacan himself uh, precisely emphasized that if anything, the lesson of psychoanalysis is that you are even more responsible than you think. You are not only responsible for what you know and consciously decided, you are even responsible, as it were, uh, for your unconscious. And this brings me now to the first crucial ethical point in what sense Lacan refers to Kant's philosophy as the crucial antecedent of the psychoanalytic ethics. According to the standard critique, which you probably all know, the limitation of the Kantian universalist ethics of categorical imperative, this unconditional injunction to do your duty, resides in its formal indeterminacy. Moral law does not tell me what my duty is, it only tells me that I should accomplish my duty. And so it leaves the space open for the empty voluntarism. Whatever I decide to be my duty is my duty. However, far from being a limitation, this Tautological emptiness, I claim, brings us to the core of the Kantian ethical autonomy. It is not possible to derive the concrete norms I have to follow in my specific situation to derive them from the moral law itself, which means that the subject himself has to assume the responsibility of translating the abstract injunction, do your duty, into a series of concrete obligations. The full acceptance of this paradox compels us to reject any reference to duty as an excuse. You know, as we usually say, I know this is heavy and painful, but what can I do? This is my duty. Here, I think even Hannah Arendt is wrong when she nonetheless claims that when Adolf Eichmann referred to Kantian ethics, when he tried to justify his role in planning and executing the Holocaust, was acting, he claimed, but I only acted as a Kantian. I did my duty, and my duty was to obey Führer's orders, and so on. But uh, I think that uh, Kant precisely prohibits this. Uh, you know, we, uh, that is to say the aim of Kant's emphasis on the subject's moral autonomy is precisely to prevent any such maneuver of putting the blame onto some figure of the big other. What does this mean? The standard motto of ethical rigor is, there is no excuse for not accomplishing one's duty. Although Kant's well-known maxim, Du kannst then du solst, you can because you must, seems to offer a new version of this motto, he, I think, implicitly complements it with its much more uncanny inversion. There is no excuse for doing your duty. That is to say, the very reference to duty as the excuse to do your duty should be rejected as hypocritical. Recall the proverbial severe sadistic teacher who subjects his pupils to merciless discipline and torture and his excuse is, I myself find it hard to beat the poor kids, but what can I do? It's my duty. This is what you are prohibited. You cannot... You cannot say, I have to do it, but I'm not in it. You are—you get my point. You are not only responsible to do your duty. You are fully responsible also to choose what your duty is. You cannot cover beneath, oh, sorry, it was there. That's ethical autonomy. Not only you are free to, to do or not to do your duty. You are fully responsible. You have to stand behind what your duty is. You cannot say, oh, sorry, I cannot help it. You can help it. You are fully responsible. The consequences of this, ethical, ontological, and so on, are, I think, uh, tremendous. To cut the long story short and come to the end, the ultimate example of this is kind of indeterministic quantum physics universe. In both sense. Usually Kant is associated with uh, Newtonian physics. People even claim like what Kant elaborated was ethics which should be at the level of modern physics, modern in his time, Newtonian science. I think if we go to the end, it's more. And to what aspect of quantum physics do I refer? To something which is really the most unsettling about it. The so-called principle of uncertainty and its ontological consequences. This principle, as we all know, prohibits us from attaining full knowledge of particles at the quantum level. It's not possible to determine the velocity and the position of a particle. For Einstein, this principle proves that quantum physics does not provide a full description of reality. There must be some unknown features which escape the quantum physics conceptual apparatus but Heisenberg, Bohr, and others insisted that this incompleteness of our knowledge of quantum reality points towards a strange incompleteness of quantum reality itself. And this is the crucial point, I think, what really is so breathtakingly important and new in quantum physics. This idea that, how should I put it, reality itself is ontologically incomplete. What do I mean by this? Something very strange that I want to explain to you through an example from video games. You know, when you play a video game, uh, uh, how do you create when you simulate reality on the screen? How do you do it? You do not have to go to the end. You just have to reproduce features which make the image realistic for your or spectator's point of view. Say, when you play a video game, there is a house in the background. You do not have to construct, if you are the programmer, uh, to program the house's entire interior, since you know that the participant will not want to enter the house, or it's not part of the game, or the construction digital of a virtual person can be limited to this person's exterior, no need to bother with inner organs bones and so on and so on it is like it is like this that the universe is uh, structured there you rem- you know how for example when you see in the background stars they remain blurred not clear but uh, it's not that if you come closer you will see them clearly because there is no program for how stars really look for close, by Because it's not part of the game that you can come so close. So what's the idea here? I love this idea developed by some American philosophers. It is that the lesson of quantum physics is that it's exactly the same with our reality. And I love this obscene idea, which is imagine God as a computer programmer in the sense of God programmed the reality that we experience of reality and god was simply a slightly lazy programmer he went up to the quantum level then he underestimated us he thought why should i bother with this velocity of atoms humans are too stupid to reach further than atomic level so why should i program it to the end he simply left it open unfortunately we were a little bit too intelligent we uh, we we as it were we went too far no and uh, so this so you get the point that reality in itself is incomplete. Now you will tell me, but this is a theological perspective what if, uh, what, if uh, what if what if what uh, if that this only holds if you have a creator who created the artificial universe, but reality in itself has to be complete in order simply to exist you know you can have. Incomplete virtual reality, but for that very reason, it is only virtual, created by some real-life programmer or whatever. I think that the big challenge for today's materialism is precisely to say, no, we can think reality itself as in itself incomplete, objectively. It's not only it's a fiction which was not written to the end. In the same way as, for example, when a writer in a novel describes a person, he doesn't enumerate all <coughs> all the <coughs> physical details or whatever. A reality in itself can be incomplete in this way. I think, again, this is the true challenge, challenge which gives us something very interesting, which gives us, uh, I think, one of the clues for, if you noticed it, something very strange that is happening today, where... What we usually identify with theology, sorry, with materialism is more and more the domain of spiritualism and theology, in what sense? In the 19th century or earlier, the idea of we are here part of this concrete bodily situation uh, contained in our finite world was the materialist idea and spiritualists dreamed about eternal life out there and so on. Today, did you notice the nice paradox that it is only the most radical, almost vulgar materialists, like this uh, cyberspace utopian computer programmers, who speak about, about immortality in the sense of fleeing or escaping the constraints of our finite bodily existence. You know, this idea of if our soul... Psyche is like a virtual program. We can become immortal by simply registering as a program and downloading it onto another material existence and so on. So we can simply eternally float and reincorporate ourselves in different... Like we are software which can be repetitively uh, 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 reincorporated copied onto different uh, uh, softwares while it is all the spiritualists which like today to emphasize how no, we are finite we are absolutely linked to this singular bodily existence we cannot step out of course then from this finitude which always leaves a gap the space for some spiritual otherness is created so it's no wonder that for example the cinema director who is the most obscurantist, if you want, spiritualist. Although I love him aesthetically, uh, Andrei Tarkovsky is at the same time the most materialist. Uh, materialist in this sense of, you know, if you know Tarkovsky's films, how his heroes is very nice aesthetic feature. They pray not in this Western way, looking up. You know, like in Stalker, which I think is Tarkovsky's ma- masterpiece. How. The guy has this sacred experience when he's lying down in mud, even with his uh, hand, uh, with his head in. uh, So it's for him, the closer you are to earth, to matter in its very uh, bad smell, rotten obscenity, the more you are spiritualized. And I think that the roles have changed here. I, I think that the materialism to be reinvented today should be precisely a much more abstract, abstract mathematical uh, material, uh, mat- materialism without matter, if you want this. Now I come to the crucial point. I will try to risk a little bit of dialogue with what I know about, you can correct me, my knowledge is limited, but nonetheless, with Buddhism, this time not the ridiculous Western Buddhism, but what I know of with my limited knowledge of, let's say, the real Buddhism. uh, Namely, why Buddhism? Because I think that the only other thought which fully accepts such an incompleteness of reality or inexistence of the big other is Buddhism. Is then the solution to be found in Buddhist ethics? Is Lacanian ethics a Buddhist ethics? There are some reasons to consider this option. Does Buddhism not lead us to enact a kind of what Lacan calls traversing the fantasy? To overcome the illusions on which our desires are based and to confront the void beneath each object of desire. Furthermore, what psychoanalysis shares with Buddhism is the emphasis that there is no self as a substantive agent of psychic life. No wonder Mark Epstein, in his book on Buddhism and psychoanalysis, refers positively to Lacan's essay on the mirror stage with its notion of the ego as an object, the result of the subject's identification with a fixed image of itself. The self is a fetishized illusion of a substantial core of subjectivity where effectively there is nothing. This is why for Buddhism the point is not to discover one's true self, but to accept that there is none, that the self as such is an illusion, an imposture. To put it in more psycholytic terms, not only should one analyze resistances, but ultimately there is really nothing but resistances to be analyzed. There is no true self waiting in the wings to be released. Self is a disruptive false and as such unnecessary metaphor for the process of awareness and knowing. When we awaken to knowing, we realize that all that goes on in us is the flow of thoughts without a thinker. The impossibility of figuring out who or what we are is inherent since there is nothing that we really are, just a void in the core of our being. Consequently, in the process of the Buddhist enlightenment, we do not quit this terrestrial world for another true reality. We just accept the unsubstantial Fleeting illusory character of this reality. We undergo the process of going to pieces without falling apart. In the gnostic mode for Buddhism, ethics is ultimately a question of knowledge and ignorance. Our craving, our desires, our attachment to terrestrial goods is conditioned by our ignorance, so that deliverance comes from proper knowing. What Christian love means is that on the contrary there is a decision not grounded in true or false knowledge. Christianity I think does breaks with the tradition of the primacy of knowledge. Ethical primacy of knowledge which spans from Buddhism through Plato to Spinoza. You know this idea that when you are evil your knowledge is lacking. Like you cannot know the good, really know the good and be evil. The nice The Point about Christianity is that not only you can, but that's almost the definition of evil. Evil is the one who knows what is good, how the goodness works better than good people. So, again, crucial for Buddhism is this reflexive shift from object to the thinker himself. First, we isolate the thing when you confront something traumatic, the thing that bothers us the cause of our suffering. Then you change not the object but yourself, the way you relate to what appears as the cause of your suffering. A quote from that Mark Epstein book, what was extinguished was only the false view of self. What had always been illusory was understood as such. Nothing was changed but the perspective of the observer. This shift involves great pain. It is not only a liberation, a step into the incestuous bliss of the infamous oceanic feeling, but also the violent experience of losing one's ground under one's feet, of being deprived of the most familiar state of one's being. This is why the best starting point for the Buddhist enlightenment is to focus on the most elementary feeling of injured innocence, of suffering an injustice without a cause, how could she do this to me? I don't deserve to be treated that way. The next step is then to make the shift to the ego itself, to the subject of these painful emotions, rendering clear its own fleeting irrelevant status. The aggression against the object that causes suffering should return against the self itself. We do not repair damage. We gain the insight into the illusory nature of that which should be repaired. That's in my simplistic version, the Buddhist view. In what then, that consists the gap that separates psychoanalysis from Buddhism, at least Lacanian psychoanalysis. Uh, in order to answer this question, we should confront what I think is the basic enigma of Buddhism, its blind spot. And okay, maybe some of you is more intelligent, but I was talking with many Buddhists, and all of them, I'm asking them this same question, I didn't yet get a good answer. The simple question is the following one. Uh, It's uh, how did the fall into so called samsara, the wheel of life, occur? That is to say, the question that we should raise is the exact opposite of the main Buddhist concern. How can we break out of the wheel of life, of this wheel of false passions and so on, and attain nirvana? The question is, Exactly the opposite one for me. It's not we are caught in this, you know, false reality, can we break out of it and attain the void? The question is, how did we fall into it in the first place? It's incidentally, precisely Hegel's question. Because for Hegel, and here you have Hegel's genius, the problem is not this boring metaphysical problem, pseudo-like, are we caught in our uh, world of appearances or can we penetrate to true Reality. The true problem is the opposite one. Of course, reality is nothing, it's just stupid reality and so on. The problem is how does reality appear to itself? That is to say, how is it that in the middle of reality, appearance emerges? emerges? How is error possible? How is false appearance possible? So, the nature and origin of the impetus by means of which desire it's deception. Emerged out of the void is the big unknown in the heart of the Buddhist edifice. And when I asked Buddhist, the ultimate answer I simply got is it's a wrong question. Buddhism isn't interested in truth. It's just an ethics which wants to enable you to step out of suffering. And that's just abstract intellectual question. That's not Buddha's problem. Buddha's problem is how to get out of the sheet in which we are. But again what interests me is exactly this problem. That is to say nirvana is the only absolute reality which is not reality and so on and so on. But how is it possible that within this totally dispersed primordial void of nirvana a false appearance emerged? How is it possible that our that we got caught into what buddhists calls Buddhists call samsara, this wheel of life, of passions which uh, enslave you, and so on, and so on. Uh, uh, this question points towards an act that, precisely in the quantum sense, maybe breaks the symmetry within nirvana itself, and thus makes appear something out of nothing. And Freud's answer for this is precisely. Uh, drive, trib now I want to be here very precise what Freud calls drive trib is not as it may appear the Buddhist will of life you know this Buddhist idea we are caught in this false desire always non-satisfied striving so the idea is when you achieve nirvana you are at complete peace of course I'm not vulgarizing here Buddhism It's not that you are in another spiritual reality. All radical Buddhists know the reality is exactly the same. Everything is the same. You are just no longer phenomenologically caught in this wheel of uh, desire and so on. Uh, So I think that uh, the point of Freud is not, no, we cannot get out, we are forever caught into the wheel of craving, which makes us non-satisfied and so on. Drive, on the contrary, is... A kind of a Freudian, you know what Galileo allegedly said after he was forced to uh, confirm that, that, uh, that Earth doesn't move, a pur si muove. The Freudian ontological wager, vete, or thesis, hypothesis, is that even when you go through fantasy, all the illusions, and so on, you are not in nirvana. Something still moves. A pur si muove. There is even at that level, Still a movement. Uh, uh, Here, to make this clear, another surprising analogy with hard sciences can be of some help. The paradox of Freudian drive is, I think, perfectly rendered in the hypothesis of so-called Higgs field, widely discussed in contemporary particle physics. It is rendered, if I understand correctly Higgs field, I have some problems here, I'm not saying I do. Uh, uh, What's the idea? The idea, if I got it correctly, is the following one. Left to their own devices in an environment to which they can pass their energy, uh, all physical systems will eventually assume a state of lowest energy. You know, like if you leave, leave a system to itself, slowly it spends energy each it achieves a sense of uh, minimum. So, to put it in another way, the more mass, mass we take from a system, the more we lower its energy, till we reach the vacuum state at which the energy is zero. There are, however, phenomena which compel us to posit the hypothesis that there has to be something, some substance, that we cannot take away from a given system without raising the system's energy. And this something is called the heat field. Once this field appears in a vessel that has been pumped empty and whose temperature has been lowered as much as possible, its temperature will be further lowered. The something which thus appears is a something which contains less energy than nothing. A something that is characterized by an overall negative energy. You see, that's the paradox, that zero is not the lowest. It's not, you take, there is something which is even less than zero. That's the Higgs field. And I think this is what Lacan aims at when he emphasizes the difference between Freud's Todestrip and the so-called Nirvana principle, according to which every life system tends towards the lowest level of tension ultimately towards death. Nothingness, the void, being deprived of all substance, and the lowest level of energy, paradoxically, no longer coincide. It's cheaper. It costs the system less energy. It's cheaper, as it were, to persist in something than to to dwell in nothing. At the lowest level of tension, or in the void, in the dissolution of all order. And it is this distance that sustains the death drive, far from being the same as the Nirvana principle. The, drive, the, the death drive is de- precisely that less than nothing, something that, how to put it, costs energetically even, costs even less than nothing. Uh, this also gives, I think, uh, gives another nice uh, answer, how we should answer the, the standard philosophical critique of Freudian trib, which is that, but isn't Freudian trib drive basically just another version of the post-Hegelian will, first developed by late Schelling and Schopenhauer and then in Nietzsche? Is, however, the Freudian drive really another name for will, for the will? A, A reference to the history of music may be of some help here. It was Schopenhauer who claimed that music brings us in contact with the dink an sich, the nominal. It renders directly the drive of the life substance that words can only signify. You know, Schopenhauer in history claims that words refer only to Vorstellungen, while in music you get directly the taste of the nominal life substance <coughs> beneath, uh, beneath phenomena. For that reason, music seizes the subject in the real of his or her being, bypassing the detour of meaning. In music, we hear what we cannot see, the vibrating life force beneath the flow of Vorstellungen. But, what but? Let me begin with one scene from a film. Recall the nice scene from the beginning of Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America, in which we see a phone ringing loudly, and when a hand picks up the receiver, the ringing goes on. It's a very mysterious effect. Okay, it's later explained, but the mysterious effect remains. It is as if the musical life force of the sound is too strong to be contained by reality. It persists beyond its limitation. There is incidentally a similar nice scene in David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. You remember, a singer sings Roy Orbison's crying. She collapses. The song goes on. Of course, later we learn it was a playback and so on. But there is for a moment, a brief moment, this confusion, you know, as if the source of voice disappears, the singing goes on. (coughs) Uh, But uh, this would be the excess of life. This is still Schopenhauerian domain. But what happens, (coughs) sorry, when this flux of life substance itself is suspended? I want to evoke another. Here we have pure life when you hear the ringing without visual counterpart or singing without... Here we have this pure life substance energy. But what happens when we have the opposite phenomenon? Like I saw years ago, it deeply impressed me, a ballet staged by George Balanchine based on a short orchestral piece by Anton Weber. They are all short, okay. So that after the music was over some five minutes of music, the dancers continued to dance for some time in complete silence, as if they did not notice that music that provided the substance for their dance is already over. You know, it's like the cat in cartoons, Tom and Jerry, who simply continues to walk even when there is no ground. Like, but It goes magically on. I think this is something, this would be the representation of drive. It's not Ville. It's not the the, the, mu- the sound which goes on, when you even have no representation to accompany it, would be pure Ville, pure life energy. But the pure drive, a Stode would have been precisely these dancers which go on dancing without music. But it still goes on, it is still moving. So I claim that even in these terms, Drive is a persistence which goes on even when the will disappears or is suspended. I think that phenomenologically, again, it's wrong to read Freud's Todestrip as another expression of Wille. Todestrip is precisely something which remains when you suspend the will. Which is why Todestrip is not active, it's much more strangely active-passive, how should I put it, Uh, ambiguous. It's a kind of a passivity of a muove It still goes on. And which is why incidentally uh, uh, again the question that interests me in Buddhism is to put it in popular culture terms. It's the question that unfortunately Star Wars fails to answer. It's, you know, as all normal people, although they are not such great feelers, I wanted to see I w- crave to see that uh, the Third part, which was the last one to be shot, where you finally learn how evil emerged. How did uh, Anakin Skywalker become Darth Vader? And the film fails there, of course, miserably, miserably. But that's, you know. But nonetheless, there is one useful notion that you find in the film: this idea of a, as they put it, disturbance in the in the field of force. No, that is to say, the idea is to put it in Buddhist terms. We don't, and there are some mysterious, I know, passages in some of Tibetan Buddhist stuff which point in this direction. That, how's the Buddha? It, it's not simply we have nirvana and then samsara, the field of false passions, appearances. Something can go terribly wrong already at the level of nirvana itself, up there. There is something wrong up there, some pathological disturbance, which is not yet we are caught in desire, in false craving, and that would be drive, I think. Drive is this, uh, the very nirvana, spiritual enlightenment getting wrong. And this is why I think that the basic redoing, this is my dream, to shoot a new version of Star Wars, where precisely the bad guys would be rehabilitated. And even I am even tempted to put it in Marxist terms like why should they be bad? I'm like a French uh, Jacobin revolutionary, and I would say the Emperor and Darth Vader are a kind of a, a little bit authoritarian, okay, but a kind of a kind of a authoritarian, democratic, egalitarian, centralized things. And who are these stupid Jedi Some corrupted old feudals, and so on, and so on. It's kind of a you know, like French Revolution, it's like Robespierre crushing Vendée and all, all that shit there, and so on. No, I would love to do this different version of it, no? So, okay, get me. To My main point. Uh, uh, I hope now you go. uh, This is again the mystery, which is the deepest mystery. I claim of Buddhism, and again there are some speculations in Tibetan Buddhism very unclear. You know where you can find. I will stop immediately. uh, You know, but you know. (laughs) The longer I talk, the less debate afterwards. So I want to hypocritically play this game of, I would so much like to stay longer, but unfortunately we don't have time. Because, you know, don't misunderstand me. I love dialogue, but I love late Plato's dialogues. You know how they look. One guy talks all the time. Every 10 minutes, the other guy says something like, yes, by Zeus, it is so... You are, that's the dialogue I want. Okay, sorry. Let me go on more seriously. What I don't have time to do... Okay, just to hint where I wanted to go on. Where do we find this minimum, minimal, almost, I'm tempted to say, pre-ontological muove It continues to move. What is its ontological status? Again, back to Kant, it is what Kant calls... Indefinite judgment. You probably know that in critique der reinen Vernunft, Kant opposes uh, 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 negative and indefinite judgment. Let's say we have uh, uh, okay. To go directly to the example I'm aiming at, let's take the negative, the positive judgment. He is dead. Let's first. Do the negative judgment. This is for Kant the judgment which negates the predicate, which is he isn't dead. No problem. It means he's alive, no? But what if we do what Kant calls infinite or indefinite judgment and we don't negate the predicate? We affirm a non-predicate. We don't say he isn't dead. We say he is undead. My God, if you know Stephen King and so on, you know that <laughs> something totally new emerges. He isn't dead, it's not the same as he is undead. He isn't dead, is he's alive. He is undead, it's the monstrosity of the living dead. Neither the one nor the other. And I claim that this precisely, this monstrosity, which is precisely, let's say, the monstrosity, they were like living dead. You remember in the scene that I evoke from Balanchine, the, the, the bodies which go on dancing even if, when the, the music stops and so on and so on. Uh, so this is, ontologically, if you want, the, the domain of drive, this spectral undeadness, which is why, again, as I emphasize all the time, be very careful when you read Freud. Freud was almo- always almost always, blinded by what? By his own discovery. Uh, he often confused uh, the strip with nirvana principle, but I claim todestrip strip is the exact opposite of nirvana principle. Nirvana principle is boring. Yo, I want to disappear in nothingness, blah, blah. Todestrip strip is precisely something which insists its undeadness in the obscene horror stories term. Uh, so if you want to find a figure of todestrip, strip, maybe like uh, it's 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 the it's the undead vampires and so on. This obscene immortality. That is the message of Freudian todestrip. That it's not only the noble sublime immortality. That's a kind of obscene Im, obscene other immortality. That is to say, that would be my final paradox. That uh, what Freud calls todestrip is paradoxically his psychoanalytic name for immortality. Todestrip is this evil existence which goes on beyond life and death and now to really conclude believe me or not (laughs) just uh, two examples just to make it clear to you or there are many other examples from (coughs) from from cinema from stories and so on now let me read you I'm sorry that in English an entire fairy tale don't be afraid it's just six seven lines maybe you know it it's the shortest of Jakob und Wilhelm Grimm's Uh, fairy tales. I forgot, my God, I have it only in English. It's called in English, The Willful Child. You know, it's just a couple of lines. I will read it to you. Again, don't be afraid. It's short. Once upon a time, there was a child who was willful and did not do what his mother wanted. For this reason, God was displeased with him and caused him to become ill, and no doctor could help him, and in a short time, he lay on his deathbed. He was lowered into a grave and covered with earth, but his little arm suddenly came forth and reached up. And it didn't help when they put it back in and put fresh earth over it. For the little arm always came out again. So the mother herself had to go to the grave and beat the little arm with a switch and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, this weird insistence, it's like a... Don't you have this wonderful German story yeah, 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 of, of the two Max and Moritz, the two... Isn't it that when they die, they are, I think, in some mill, mill for grain, but then the, the indication is that when they are turned just into dust, the dust still has the form of their grinning faces, you know? They are so evil that yeah, yeah. the evil exists. Or, you know, this is street, this existence. Or, do you know, for example, Andersen, Red Shoes, you know this girl who goes on dancing, cannot help against herself, dance goes on, uh, the dance uh, goes on, or uh, uh, or of course uh, 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 of course, it's crucial that here we have the hand as the agent in this Grimm's fairy tale, for example, did you see I love it? I think this is the true. Test: Are you just a liberal or a true leftist? If you like uh, the film uh, with, with Brad Pitt and uh, Ed Norton, uh, uh, Fight Club, if you think this is a potentially totalitarian, dangerous film, it's you don't get it. I think the, the most painful scene of that film, you remember it, when Ed Norton confronts his boss and, kind of a his fist hand, like in Green Fairy Tale, gets autonomous and starts to he starts to beat himself. This is death drive at its purets, this autonomous organ uh, starting, uh, starting to strike back and so on and so on. So, okay, I will stop now, but we can go on, because I think that <laughs> if we read death drive in this way, as this, Zero level, almost I'm tempted to say, metaphysical dimension. You know where you also find death drive at its purest? Just the last example. It's a vulgar commercial film, but it's not as stupid as it may appear. It's very interesting. Did you see with Jim Carrey the mask? This idea of he's an ordinary guy who dreams about being a hero, but he's nobody. Then he finds a mysterious mask, and when he puts the mask on, he becomes undead. You know, like a character from cartoons, totally plastic. He can uh, uh, he can split himself into two, always decomposed. Because I think that precisely in cartoons, psychiatric Filme, you find death drive and it's pure. Death drive is this. You know how it goes. Tom and Jerry. They can be cut into pieces. They always magically reappear. They go on again and again. And so I think this is the properly philosophical dimension of death drive because I stop here when the real work should begin which is to demonstrate how what we find in death drive is has to be given the full dignity of a new version of what in German idealism it was called this radical self-relating negativity. I did finish. Thank you very much. (laughs) Stop, stop, because this reminds me of my beloved, I read somewhere that when Stalin was old, some 40, 50, that's important, they were little, generals came to give him some medal, and they were all, you know, just forty, fifty, and they applauded. And then, you know, like, there were not many, and they, they nobody dared to be the first to stop the applause. And it was so painful, it went on for half an hour. And then one of them dropped down and so on, and Stalin just cynically observed it, you know. Ah, And then finally he said, okay, stop, and so on and so on. That's my dream. It will not happen. Sorry. (laughs) Now we can have 10 minutes to pretend that we are in a democracy. That's life. So thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, First, and then,
1: yes, I open for
0: questions um, but no, no, very I mean, brief. Not, like, to put it in the terms of your research project here spannung, tension that i would precisely be in this radical spannung, which is more elementary than void and peace itself no i think precisely this that there is a pre-ontological level of spannung. that's the thesis that drive has a much more radical status than it may appear you can fragen auf Deutsch stellen, when that's like there is. No, in English. <laughs> then you, you, I don't have the excuse of claiming, oh, sorry, I didn't understand you. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you for,
1: for your lecture. I have a question for you. In the parallax view, you relate this um, the movement of value and commodities with the tollestrip. And with that the, is with the tollestrip. Ah, and that is with. It looks like you relate the commodities and the movement of commodities with the living death. So it seems to me that the market, the very movement of the market, is related with it with this spectrality. So my question is: What to do with this spectrality that is also found in the market? Is there something to do against it? We have to. We have to accept it. We have to accept that market is um, a type of undead thing or is it still possible to do a critique of this spectrality and to find, for example, the worker or exploitation? Mm.
0: That's my question. Oh, no, that's a wonderful question because first, yes, I do, okay, I, uh, I do something very precise and I think it works nicely. I claim that if you look at a capitalist as an individual, he has desires. But you know how Marx always emphasized that, that there is a certain objective logic in the movement of the capital which cannot be reduced to what capitalists want or whatever. You can be, for example, as a capitalist, a good guy. You can do, want this. but there is And I claim that in a very precise way that the logic there is that of a trib. You know how... Marx defines in what is for me a crucial chapter in Capital, I think it's the, no, seventh or later, the passage from money to capital, which is formulated in precise Hegelian terms of the passage from substance to subject. Money is simply the embodied substance of value. With capital, money becomes subject. It's no longer just the medium of exchange, abstract universality. It becomes subjects which divide it and so on. And then when Marx said how with this simple shift, the process becomes precisely undead, because the, the goal of circulation is just the repeated circulation itself. It's a certain undeadness at work here. Now, we don't have time to go into philosophical debate, which would be extremely interesting. To what extent is this what is not possible for Hegel to get? Because capital is at the same time something monstrous in Hegelian terms. It is not just mechanical, how do you call it, schlechte but infinity. It is self-relating subjectivity, but nonetheless endless in the sense of just endlessly repeating. It's as if you get, how to put it, Vernunft, Selbstvermittlung, itself functioning like this, schlechtes Verstand, or what? It's something very paradoxical. So, uh, uh, But the second point, I agree very much with the critical insinuation, in a good sense, of your question, which is, I think this, what you indicated, is a danger which, unfortunately, I think in my reading, you can correct me, Derrida in his Les Spectres de Marx falls into... Because, you know, he goes into this spectrality, blah, blah, and then his idea is, but Marx naively thought that spectrality is just for a certain historical... But since spectrality is irreducible, isn't then capital also irreducible? Like, you know, we can fight it like Hydra, but it will forever return, and so on, and so on. I think that... uh, uh, I think that... uh, the answer is a very simple one. I don't think one should make this typical ontological Kurzschluss and identify spectrality as such with this concrete form of spectrality and so on and so on. I think that if there is a mistake in a certain vulgar ontological type of dialectical materialism, Marxism, is precisely that this image of communism as you know totally self-transparent reality reality onto itself and so on and so on <laughs> uh, uh, i think that uh, in this sense no i totally oppose this postmodern idea that the very project of stepping out of capitalist spectrality is the greatest metaphysical illusion we cannot we are always parts of it and so on and so on no how to put it the status of spectrality can change and so on, as I developed already before when we were up there in that more uh, restrained seminar. I'm thinking more in these terms. For example, Alain Badiou says something in a very nice way that although a certain impossibility remains, but its status can change radically. So, this, for example, Badiou's nice simple example. Take uh, irrational numbers, the square of minus one. Of course, they are impossible to positivize. But in more traditional mathematics, even Marx here made one of his big stupid mistakes, where in his mathematical manuscripts, he just dismisses them. This is total stupidity, meaningless, and so on, no? But uh, what happened then in modern mathematics throughout the 19th century is that uh, they integrated this impossibility. The idea is, yes, it's impossible, but we use it as a symbol and it works. You can, uh, calculating with irrational numbers—sorry, uh, uh, not irrational, imaginary numbers—you can build very stable real buildings and so on. No, it works. You see, something like this can be done. The, the, it's not that we all—I I don't like this postmodern idea. We always need illusions or whatever. I mean, radical changes are possible in the status of illusion, in how illusion deals with and so on and so on. So uh, I. I agree very much, I agree very much with you, with you here that one should be very, very precise here not to elevate call it, uh, 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 impossibilities which are specifically capitalist into some kind of uh, external ontological condition or whatever, no?
2: During I'm wondering how you uh, distinguish death drive from capital and death drive from sexual drive because I was reminded when you described death drive uh, of similar passages uh, by Freud on the sexual drive uh, as much on um, how one refers to uh, the logics of capital.
0: Uh, First, uh, I, I would have to be here much more precise because I'm well aware Of the problem, the oh, death drive, now we have a new category and it calls for everything, you know, for sexuality, for capital and so on. But I don't think we gain, I mean, it's not that we say anything great if we say capital is death drive or whatever, no, because it just means that it's, a certain self-relating automatic process of Wiederholungszwang and so on and so on. But the other question is uh, very interesting that you raised now uh, this, uh, because I think that this is the greatest uh, verkennung or how put it, of Freud, that he was, as it were, afraid, withdrew from what he discovered, so he quickly tried to ontologize it in the sense of reinscribing into traditional ontology, which he did with this extra stupidity. This is Freud at his worst, eros thanatos. I think there is only one drive, which is death drive, and which is as such sexualized. I mean, because death drive, again, doesn't mean I want to disappear, nothingness. All that Freudian topic of, you know, Uh, opposing uh, eros as uniting, uh, civilizing, death drive as destructive. I think totally false. First, sexuality as such is radically destructive in its excess excess, and so on. So again, my point would have been that uh, there is only one drive and death drive is just, uh, how do I put it, is just a kind of a distortion of Loose principle. Death drive is just this insistence, repetitive insistence, which not only is not opposed to sexuality, but as such, sexualizes things. Like, I took, made already this afternoon up there a very really vulgar example. I like it. Let's say I were to shake one of your hands. We shake hands like this. What would have been your impression if I would simply cling to your hand and squeeze it again and again and again? You will... Probably say, dirty old man, what does he want? But note the paradox. The very fact that I just repeatedly insisted on a gesture will be sexualized. So we have here many paradoxes, and again, I think this is one of the big examples where Freud misrecognized his own uh, achievement. There was another lady there. Let's. Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. one last question. I'm so rich, man. I'm so sorry. I so I didn't want to impose some transsexual operation on you. Sorry. Sorry.
2: You're welcome. Well. Ich nutze die Chance, es auf Deutsch zu fragen.
0: Ja, yeah, natürlich, ja. Yeah. Die Ich bin also, einsatzbereit auch für solche Fragen. <laughs> ja, ja.
2: Du ja. rede weiter. Um. Die Frage, warum muss ich sozusagen in der Beschreibung von kapitalistischen Systemen ja. sozusagen auf den Todestrieb zurückgreifen, wenn man mit Lacan ja im Prinzip sozusagen auch im 16., 17. Seminar eher auf die Diskurstheorie gehen könnte und eher sozusagen auf die oh, Mehrlustbewegung. Eher auf die Diskurstheorie. Ja, ja. Also, ich, ne, ist ja eine emphatische ja. Betonung des ja, ja, Todestriefs, auch ja, ja. In, seinem, in, seinem in seiner philosophischen, und seiner politischen mhm. Dimension. Aber Lacan bietet ja sozusagen schon auch eine Lösung an, ne, im 16 und 17. Ah, Seminar. Das ist eine... Und, und yeah. da würde er ja sozusagen tatsächlich ja sagen, es gibt einen kapitalistischen Diskurs huh? und es gibt einen psychoanalytischen Diskurs und wir können sozusagen mit der Mehrlust analog zum Mehrwert das, also, ne, diese Bewegung stoppen, indem wir es hysterisieren. Ja,
0: yeah, but this is for me very, it's a very difficult, complex question which we touched here because you know, you know that Lacan was searching for the right formula at some point he thought that that how Merwert functions at some point he thought that that this is that it's capitalist discourse is uh, heron master's discourse with just places change sometimes that it's hysterical this I think that Lacan was searching for the right way there but I don't think there is an exclu- an, an alternative in what I said because you know the way to answer you, but we don't have time now, would be to address a very difficult question: this object clinessa, A. How does it, its function change in drive from desire to drive? The standard definition. In the Im. In?
2: In
0: in the void yeah but in what sense in desire it's also the void every object is the metonymy of void and so on I think there is I don't have time now I tried to do it towards the end of the first chapter of my parallax if I remember correctly that it's a, it's, a, how you put it? it's a much more refined division here. Because at the level of desire, we are in this Kantian field. You know, there is a void, and every object is a metonymy of void, and so on and so on. I don't think that the object of trib, object A, ah, functions there in the same way. It's not something we are metonymically after, it's more a void like a purely formal twist. How should I put it? Like, the, 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 the metaphor that I like to use is, again, very primitive. I don't know what it means there. You know, this wonderful idea of Einstein, you know how Einstein, I use this in all my books, first thought that matter curves, distorts the space. But then he had a much more ingenious idea that matter is nothing but an effect of the curving the space. So it's not that we have stuff as a positive substance so that empty space would be perfect symmetric, but it's that uh, the original fact is curving the space, and I think that in this sense in drive object a is that which accounts for this spannung it's this mini, mini, minimal spannung which is not yet caught in this endless logic of desire, so I think that uh, in a way drive trip is if you want ontologically more primordial then, desire, but what you, you know what's the problem here with Lacan? He's like Foucault and others, struggling with two, you know, we all know, at least already from Adorno, that modernity has two aspects. One aspect is this, uh, as Foucault would have put it, surveiller, punir, central administration, and so on. The other is this, capitalist dynamics. And I didn't yet find a really good theory of bringing the two dimensions together. So sometimes Lacan flirts more with this Foucauldian view, and his thesis is there, modernity is discourse of university, where we no longer have a master, we have knowledge, and so on. So, But then sometimes he goes more into this hysterical subjectivity, and so on and so on. But one has also to be <coughs> to be... Critical here in the sense of. How put it, yeah, yeah, Lacan was great, but I wouldn't. Uh, how put it, he, unfortunately, I must say, in my old age, I'm coming to this, he had certain limitations, Lacan. I mean, it's very difficult. No, 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 I'm still theological dogmatic. The one who doesn't have limitations is Hegel. I'm getting in my old age. <laughs>